Earlier this week, I spoke with the community about the potential benefits of paying attention to simplicity and agility, particularly because at this time in our community here, there's various people arriving and others leaving and changes the dynamic of the community. And if we are not careful, we can resist the change and that leads to difficulties. So as well as agility, the the risk of complicating practice is something also that it's smart to pay attention to. It's not just during times when there's lots of change going on. However, it's always a risk that we're going to compulsively uh, complicate things. It's something that many of you will be familiar with. The Buddha's talking about his teaching as Ni Papancha. Um, he said, I teach Ni Papancha, not Papancha. The translation of the word Papancha being classically translated as proliferation. Complicating things. And we easily get caught up in compulsively complicating things when, in fact, a more simple approach could be more productive. Now, this is not to say that life is simple. And I suspect we all know that life is really complex. It's, however, the way we approach the complexity can lead to understanding or it can lead to making things more, more confusing, more disappointing, more discontented. Just something as simple as you know, the way the body operates, the process of digesting food. If you look into the chemistry involved, the process of food digestion so can be recognized as an intensely complex process. However, do we really need to know all that? Well, if we're sick, it's good if a few people know about the complexities and intricacies of the process of digesting food. Do we really need to know about it? We can eat what's considered as sensible, healthy food and trust that the digestion will look after itself. And so much of life is like that. If we, if we don't pay attention the right way or to the, in the right direction, we can overly complicate things. And so I was suggesting in that talk earlier this week that, that we look at how we possibly overcomplicate things, and including how we overcomplicate our spiritual practice. It's true, there can be a time and can be very useful for those who have the capacity to, to contemplate the 37 Bodhipakya Dhammas or the 12 links of dependent origination of Patija Samapada. Does everybody need to be doing that? Or might a more simple approach to practice bring better results? 
Sometimes it seems that because of the way we were conditioned in our education, that we use information about reality to give us a sense of security. And we all clearly like the sense of security. Since we don't have the security that comes with profound, limitless insight into reality, we find security in other ways. And it's true that contemplating Dhamma can be a source of security. However, do we need to keep turning to the books and endlessly reminding ourselves about what the Buddha taught and giving ourselves a sense of security? Do we need to keep doing that? Or is it the case that sometimes we need to be more present for honest about the, just the feeling of being insecure, like feeling unsafe, feeling uncertain. So we could, potentially we could look at the feeling of being uncertain, unsafe, insecure, and let the awareness of the feeling of insecurity be our source of security. Or we can replace that feeling of insecurity with an idea that leads to a conceptual understanding. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't be studying the theory of Dhamma. Certainly, there can be benefit in that. There's also, however, a need to recognize when we're using the approximations for real understanding as a source of security and be willing to be honest about that. Simply being honest can be a more simple approach to practice the complexity of the world and the complexity of our experiences and the challenges we face and the physical and the mental, psychological, emotional can be very, very complicated and, and including reading some of the, the Buddhist scriptures and if we just bring it down to being honest being honest on all levels what does that feel like? being honest level of physical activity cultivating integrity on the level of physical activity well we all know about not stealing and not killing how about our relationship to food for instance like for those who go shopping for food I recently looked up the statistics for how much food was wasted in the UK every year phenomenal, phenomenal amount of food is wasted. But why does that happen? It might be possible to speak profoundly about interesting aspects of reality and political, spiritual, economic, and yet do we know how to buy the right amount of food or living in the monastery here are we able to go through the food line and take the right amount of food or do we always take too much? And do we waste food unnecessarily? Or likewise with the, on the physical level, likewise with exercise. Do we do enough exercise? We know exercise is good for us. Do we do enough exercise? If we're honest, sitting in front of the computer all day long, even though it's fascinating, is probably not a good idea. And even if we do need to sit in front of a computer for a a good part of the day to always oh, so supplement that 
activity with something that's really going to nourish the body. So being being honest on the level of physical activity, including our relationship with technology, are we are we enslaved to technology or do we use technology? I noticed just yesterday or maybe the day before, I was sending an email to somebody and, and I wanted to have a, a conversation with this person and and so on the subject line I was tempted to write the word chat. And I realised, well, that's that's being pulled into the casual culture. Just, I know there's all sorts of abbreviations used now and and text speak what effect does that have on us so in that moment I felt like this technology is drawing me into being more casual and I want to be be more speedy than I want to be slow down so I slowed down and I wrote the whole word in the subject line conversation it's a lot longer, took longer however I felt that I was in so doing that small gesture just a little bit defining my relationship with technologies. I wasn't being dragged along by it. So being honest in our relationship with physical activity, with technology, with food, with exercise. On the level of speech, again, of course, we're all familiar with the Buddha's encouragement to obviously make an effort to be impeccable with not lying. We can take it to another level and See, is our speech manipulative? We can use our speech in ways that manipulate people, like purporting, for instance, purporting to be a friend, when in fact, maybe really what we're doing is just wanting to control this person. What is a, what is a true friend? If we talk in ways that communicate to somebody that we're, we want to be their friend, what is the obligation in that? What are we really, in, if we're honest, what are we doing when we speak like that? Are we really going to be available for this person as a friend? Is that what we're offering them? True friendship, reliability? Mm. Or is it something else that's going on? Sometimes we can use speech in manipulative ways just to create an impression without really wanting to take responsibility for it. Sometimes to be manipulative. Sometimes to control, even have power over other people. There's a chant that we recite regularly in the monastery, Nati me saranang anyang buddha me saranang warang e tena satcha wajena soti te ondasapada that satcha wajena truth speech. There is no refuge for me other than the Buddha by this truth speech may you be safe or there's some there's some something special about truth speech about saying that which is true speaking with integrity and in today's world it's very easy because communication has been so quick and so casual that we forget the potential power of speaking consciously, carefully, honestly. So if we're simplifying our practice, and this can be a beneficial focus, just 
Just how honest can I be in my actions of body, actions of speech, and actions of mind? If we get a little mindfulness going and listen to what's going on inside our heads and we come to recognize the stories that we tell ourselves. I'm this sort of person. I'm somebody who can just, I can handle any situation if we're super confident. Or I'm somebody, I'm a hopeless case. I can't handle any situation if we're not so confident. That's a story. If we're honest, then I would suggest we'd be willing to just listen to that and question it. Undermine the assumption that that's truth. That that's not the truth, that's a story. We don't know whether we can handle situations. Most of the time we don't know whether we can handle situations. And yet very early on in life we believed in the story of selfhood once it was established and take it very, very seriously. And then we promote it and, and we defend it and we polish it. And However, with a commitment to integrity and a commitment to honesty, we can question the apparent solidity of the sense of self. Question, listen to the stories. Like something as complicated as, as global warming. It's no, there is no simple answer to it. There's a really complex situation. And maybe the best place, the right place, the truest place to start is to say, I don't know what's actually going on here. Even scientists, they've got lots of information and theories. And certainly a lot of people are quite rightly very interested. However, to cling to those theories and those views and those opinions and assume that they're ultimate, is that really honest? Maybe a more creative approach is to start from saying, I don't know, but I'm really interested. Maybe that's, we can say that in, in all honesty. And being willing to question the views that we hold and the opinions. And perhaps some of you have heard that story of when Ajahn Sumato went back to Thailand. He'd been, been living in the UK for a few years and, and he went back to Thailand with a group of the lay supporters, the men and women who were associated with Chithurst Monastery in those days. And, and once they got to Wat Bapong in the northeast of Thailand, uh, the women were taken to, to settle into the nuns' community and the men were settled into the monks' community. And Ajahn Sumedha had been praising this American nun who was living there at the time and saying oh, what a wonderful person she was. And, of course, the, the women were looking forward to meeting her. And it turned out that, that unbeknownst to Ajahn Sumedha, she had been converted. She was now a born-again Christian. And she was still living in the monastery and she was praising Jesus and not praising Ajahn Chah. And of course these women were obviously taken aback and, and let Ajahn Sumedha know about that and he was pretty taken aback so he went to see Ajahn Chah and said, how could this happen? How could this have happened after all these years? And Ajahn Chah's response was, well maybe she's right. So, the recommendation from Ajahn Chah there is to you, you think you're so right, what are you offended about? You know, just, if we're not clinging to ideas, then we don't have to be offended by somebody else's idea. If they think they're right, we can listen to them. And the stories we tell ourselves about uh, our preferences and 
our likes and our dislikes. And if we're honest, then we would need to question those. And for instance, the prejudices that we hold, you might like to think, I don't have prejudices. And I had an embarrassing situation some years ago when I was on a train. And if I remember rightly, I'd, I'd walked to the end of the carriage to use the bathroom and I'd walk back to my seat again and I'm right down the other end of the carriage and I'm sitting there and, and then I was just looking down the carriage and, and there was this very elderly woman started wandering down the carriage and she was having trouble steadying herself and she was really dishevelled and, and her hair was all scruffy and, and I, I, I don't know whether I thought she was drunk but I, I certainly was having critical thoughts in my mind about this, this dishevelled old lady making her way down the carriage and, and then she got to the row where I was seat, sitting and she reached over and she said, oh, excuse me, you dropped your ticket as you walked by. And she gave me my train ticket and, of course, I was embarrassed and realised the prejudiced views that I was entertaining. And we might like to think that our likes and dislikes are, are neutral and economist. If we're clinging, they can be prejudices. And So if we have a commitment to integrity, to honesty, then we can learn from these situations not assume that we need more information or we need more experiences. The experiences we're all having can be our field of inquiry. The everyday experiences that we're having can be our field of inquiry, can be our practice. Situations we find ourselves in, how honest can we be about how we feel and what we think in that situation? If you find yourself in a position of public speaking, most people find that really challenging and if we in that situation pretend that we don't find it challenging pretend that we don't feel threatened lie to ourselves which is what believing in these stories is really about if that's what we do then it gets locked into the system and produces even more stress more unnecessary pressure on the other hand being honest about maybe feeling intimidated by public speaking doesn't have to mean that you sit up there and then start telling people how afraid you are. That's, that's not necessarily honest. It's quite embarrassing when monks and nuns sit on the Dhamma seat and start sharing their feelings about how afraid and intimidated they are. In a way, that's, that's not honestly taking responsibility for what's going on. That, that's almost like asking other people to take responsibility for you. So developing our awareness, developing our faculties in a way whereby we can be increasingly honest about what's happening right now. Doing the dishes, how do I feel about this? I feel really irritated. I don't like the way that guy is washing the dishes or I don't like the way she's drying the dishes. he's not doing a good job cleaning the dishes and it makes me really angry are we being honest about that or are we philosophizing about oh there's no self there's no self the Buddha taught anatta so I don't feel angry because that means there's a self there is no self we make a a complicated story up the fact is we're feeling aversion can we simply accept right now this suffering that I'm experiencing is mine. I'm doing this except the relative, apparent reality of the being a self. Yeah. 
pontificating about not self. You, you want to think, well, if somebody came up to you and, and grabbed your ear and twisted it, or, or worse still, punched you in the nose, <laughs> would the first thought that comes up be, oh, there's no self? <laughs> I doubt it very much. So, turning to theory of Dhamma, when actually we're not really registering in all honesty what's going on right now, can just make life more complicated. So, finding ways of, of developing our faculties so that we can really attend to what's going on in the moment. I was talking to a senior monk recently who went to see Lumpur Liam the abbot of Wat Mongkwapong in Thailand. and I think at the time he was staying at another monastery, but anyway, the senior monk went to see Lumpur Liam and in the conversation mentioned to him how, oh, there's this meeting planned of, of the, uh, a lot of the senior monks in the Western branch monasteries and they're going to be having a, a, a Zoom call and, and there's a very real likelihood that uh, political issues will, will be introduced into the conversation and and Lord Paul Liam's response was, he said, oh, that's uh, talking about political issues. What you should be talking about is the five spiritual faculties. When you get together like that, what's useful, what's productive, talking about the five spiritual faculties. What is faith? What really is faith? In the beginning, we have, we have information and belief in the Buddha. We think the Buddha is great, the Buddha is amazing, his teachings are amazing, and and we believe in them, and we feel good about that, and that gives us some confidence. In terms of reality, when we're suffering, what does our faith in the Buddha look like when we're really suffering, when we've, we've had our feelings hurt? What does our refuge in the Buddha really mean? What does faith in the Buddha really mean when we're disappointed? Do we have the readiness to pay attention to hurt feelings in the body, in the mind, really feel, really take responsibility. Somebody said something or did something and we feel hurt. Do we really accept full responsibility for that or do we say, that person hurt me? If somebody else has the power to hurt us, that means the Buddha can never get enlightened. Nobody has the power to hurt us. We hurt ourselves. They can cause us physical pain, that's true. They can trigger emotional pain, that's true. The real hurt that we suffer from is something that we do and that takes that takes another level of, of honesty to really admit that and, and faith in the Buddha maybe we could think of it in terms of the willingness, the readiness the readiness to turn to selfless just knowing awareness can we just know this feeling as it is in the moment without Propuncture without complicating, without adding to it. He said this and he did that and this is my problem. All of that's extra. Can we just feel the pain of life without adding to it, without complicating it? Or the spiritual faculty of, of very energy. And are we motivated to make that kind of an effort? Or do we just follow the heedless conditioned habitual reactions and go into the stories and or the spiritual faculty of sati, do we have the alertness, the readiness, the presence, the attentiveness to register, to read what's going on? Mm. Or again, do we just follow the stories or distractions? Mm. The spiritual faculty of collectedness, 
Do we have the vitality, the steadiness of attention to drill down beyond merely the way things appear to be? Yes, on the surface level it appears, that person hurt me. That's what it looks like on the surface. Is that ultimately, is that really, is that actually what, what's happening? And do we have the strength of attention, the discipline of attention to go deeper? Yeah. Or the spiritual faculty of discernment, that ability to undermine assumptions, uh, conditioned assumptions that we have about reality. So this theme of simplification, it's not, as I was saying, it's not pretending that life is simple when it's very complicated. Rather, it's a skillful strategy of not compulsively complicating life and making it any more difficult than it already is. Simplification can also be a way of strengthening and deepening our practice. Thank you very much this evening for your attention.